Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. I'm so excited to bring you this episode featuring Dr. Patricia Wexler. She's a super famous dermatologist, and it was so lovely to get to know her and hear about her career. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Camille McDonald. She's a consultant. I hope you enjoy the shows. I am so excited to be sitting with Patricia Wexler. She is a cosmetic dermatologist. Thank you for joining us on Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here with you. I want to start with my favorite question because it's um, you know, a normal question for everybody. Um, how will you spend your day today? Well, I'm starting it here, <laughs> which is making me very happy. And I go from here to the office, which is what I do every day. I'm usually there at 8.30 in the morning. Um, I try to have my breakfast there and the times, so I get there a little bit early. I start patients at 9, and I take a break during lunch, and I eat with my husband. We work together. We have four doctors in the office. We usually have a meeting, um, although I like the office to have lunch together. We have a large staff room and we eat with everybody in the office. So there's no appointments during the lunch hour? There are no appointments during the lunch hour. Uh, sometimes we have a meeting about the new technology. We've gotten four new lasers in the past six months and we talk about our experience with them and sometimes we talk about movies and the latest things we're watching on television. And then we go back to work for the rest of the day till about six o'clock. And um, how many days a week are you in the practice, in the office? I work five days a week. My husband works five days a week. Everybody else works four. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to um, dive deep into your experience as a dermatologist, as a mother, as a wife, um, and a product and brand builder. So let's start with um, my favorite question from when we had our pre-call. What inspired you to become a physician? Well, my parents were both ill from the time I was young. Uh, So I decided when I was five, I was going to be a doctor and make them better. (laughs) Little did I know it's not that easy. It's easy to become a doctor relatively to make them better. So I was pre-med at five. And my mother, who was very progressive, she was a personal assistant when I was growing up, an an assistant executive. Um, She went to school and told them to give me advanced science books and advanced readers. And I was in public school and she did that. And she drove me to the test for music and art and Bronx science. And I got into both schools and I decided I wasn't going to be a professional violinist. So I went to Bronx science. Um, and I, I've just been pre-med my whole life. I never thought of doing anything else. It's amazing because there's not that many people who really know what they want to be when they grow up like when they're five, I wanted to be an archaeologist or I wanted to own a jewelry store. So neither of those, you know, became passions that I wanted to follow. Um, And there really are only like, I feel like a few people in each like cohort were like, I'm going to do this. And then they actually go to do it. Um, Do you remember that feeling when you were like, you know, at Bronx Science, just like the total commitment to becoming a doctor? Yes. I just never wanted to do, I had other interests. I was an art minor in NYU, and I worked in the art department part-time for extra money and also for the experience. Uh, And I love art. I have a big art collection of photography that we started 30 years ago. So I still love art, and I like doing philanthropy, but my passion is 
as medicine. And I've always loved helping people. When I was a little girl, I remember reading to a blind child in our building. So I, I've always loved helping people. That was my passion. Were your, was your mother able to see you become a physician? Uh, she saw me become a physician, but she didn't see me successful. She had dementia, and my father had dementia as well. So, and I took care of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't cure them, but I took care of them. And that drove me to be involved with City Meals on Wheels. I've been on the board for 31 years. Oh, that's wonderful. So, because I was lucky enough to be able to take care of my parents, but there are so many elderly people who were abandoned by their family and children, and they have nobody, and more women than men, actually, because men have veterans' benefits and they have people they can count on, but women are sort of abandoned, and uh, we, there are so many people that are being helped by City Meals on Wheels, so I'm very committed to them. That's a really long partnership, too. It is. It is. What have you seen in terms of the growth of the organization through the oh, 30 years? We deliver over 2 million meals a year, mm -hmm. and we, every penny we collect is given to feeding the elderly. There are no administrative costs taken off mm -hmm. of it. So it's, it's really been a very emotional experience for me seeing how well they do. I mean, these are people who had very, very constructive lives. They were teachers. They were singers, they were in the arts, they were, they had families, they were, they were very productive people. And then they were, most of them live in studio apartments when they open the door for their meal delivery, sometimes the door hits the bed. Mm -hmm. And they're isolated in hot weather, they're isolated in cold weather, when it's raining, when it's snowing, they never leave their apartments. And during Sandy, they were, they didn't have electricity for a week and they would have starved, they would have died without these deliveries. Mm -hmm. In fact, during Sandy, we delivered 62,000 extra meals to lower Manhattan to the people who lost electricity. Mm -hmm. Well, this initiative sounds incredible and completely tied to your devotion to helping people. So I really, and it, it sounds silly, but in cosmetic dermatology, it helps them also because people with low self-esteem or people as they age and they, see the aging process and yet we live much longer, feel very mm -hmm. depressed about it. Um, that's actually pretty fascinating, you know, that you're a part therapist, I guess, in, in that sense too, right? Much, very much so. Um, have the conversations around not feeling relevant in the workplace um, become more prevalent in the past 10 years or so? I'd say almost every patient has a reason they're doing it. Mm -hmm. They never talk about the vanity as much as what they feel about what's happened to them. Right. That's really interesting. Um, you know, we in New York, many people have access to great physicians, right? So, so to be able to um, actually see a challenge in front of them and um, notice the lack of relevance because of what they think of as an age barrier or whatever, um, and to be able to actually fix it, right, address it and get that confidence back, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, I have patients who are in their 70s who are still working at the UN, mm -hmm. and they, they really do these things because they are productive and they want to be taken seriously. They don't want to be treated as elderly people. Right, right, that's so interesting. Oh, that's not never a word you use in your practice. No, no. ageism is, is a problem mm -hmm. because there are people who, age, ageism should never be thought of. Right. As a culture, I don't think that we value wisdom and experience the way that we should. 
Well, for my sake, I hope we value it because I'm still working. You know, I just renewed my lease, so I have Good. no intention of retiring. In How long did you renew it for? I, I've renewed for another seven years. Oh, good. Good. Congratulations. Thank you. You'll be there. I'll be there. So let's talk about your relationship with your husband. You mentioned that you have lunch together every day. Um, you've been together for 47 years, yeah, right? we married for 47 years. Okay. I'm working together every day. Yes. So his background was not dermatology. His background was initially surgery. Mm-hmm. He did cancer surgery. And I think if you do cancer surgery for a long time, you eventually mm-hmm. burn out. Mm-hmm. And he used lasers actually before dermatology. In his specialty, he was a laser specialist. So I told him he should join the practice because we hadn't used lasers at that point. When I, you know, a doctor, very fa- a very old, wise doctor said to me, pity's the doctor that's still doing what they learned in their training. Mm-hmm. You have to keep evolving. So I said he should join us in the practice. And he was one of the first people in our practice to use the lasers. And he, he specializes in the practice in lasers, ultrasound, radio frequency, and he does surgical procedures. So let's talk about this re-education of oneself, right? I think this is important, not just in your industry, but every business. I agree. Um, what, what did you have to do along the way to keep relevant and stay fresh on these new ideas? Well, we constantly go to lecture, to conferences, and we pick and choose which ones. I don't go to the basic conferences anymore. We go to the real specialized conferences. Mm-hmm. And then they have exhibits that talk about, that show the machines that they're lecturing mm-hmm. about. And usually we either visit an office that has the technology or more likely they bring the technology in. They teach us how to use it and we'll use it for a month or so mm-hmm. and see if we like it. And I don't buy it before I see if I say, as I say, I date before I marry. <laughs> Not much, but I, but I'll try the technology before I commit to it. Mm-hmm. And this year we've bought four different technologies because they're much better. The healing is quicker mm-hmm. and the results are very dramatic. So we keep, the technology can get outdated quickly and then you're upgrading it to newer technology. And um, when you were um, early in your career and looking to continue your learning, did you find um, other physicians were willing to teach you and guide you what they knew at the time? Well, the funny thing is when I started, there was not really cosmetic dermatology. Dr. Orntreich was doing silicone and he was doing dermabrasion. And that was it for cosmetic dermatology. But when I started, I was one of the first people I think I was the first person on the East Coast to do botulinum toxin uh, in 1990. So I've been doing it for 28 mm-hmm. years. And I did tumescent liposuction in 1986. And at that point when I was doing liposuction, the only filler we had was collagen, which was not very efficient. And I developed a technique with my friend, Dr. Glogel in California, to harvest the fat sterilely, uh, centrifuge it and use it for injections. So we were doing fat transplantation in 1986. So they weren't really teaching us, we were developing these procedures. Right. So did um, were you able to be first to these innovations because you were seeking these out? Were you super active and ambitious in this? We were progressive. Mm-hmm. We were innovative. Mm-hmm in the liposuction, in the fat transplantation, certainly in the botulinum toxin. Um, and we've been progressive. And when I, when I learn a technique, 
I certainly learn it the way they teach it, but you can use it and cater it to what you think it would be beneficial for and how you think you can make it heal quicker and you can make it work for you in a way you think is better. So you have to think out of the box. And in medicine, we do things out of the box. We, we do what we think is safe and efficient. So you have to be progressive. You can't just be cookie cutter. So these new technologies and new machines that are coming along, I would assume that at this point in your career, if one of these techniques and machines has your stamp of approval, it's worth its weight in gold. People tend to ask me if I like the machines, but I've never been a consultant for any company. I, I think I'm unusual in that respect that I've never, I've never been a consultant because I feel that it would, it would be, for me, a conflict of interest mm -hmm. if I was a consultant for a company. So when you say a consultant, be a spokesperson a for spoke, one of these well, devices? Well, a spokesperson. Mm -hmm. I feel very good about endorsing something I believe in, mm -hmm. but if I was paid, I think people would think that it was a conflict of interest. Right, so this is contrary to the influencer culture that we live in now, right? right? They, they certainly, they asked me to be consultants, mm -hmm. but I said, I'm, for them, I'm more value if I just say what I feel. Right. And if I don't like something, I say what I feel. That's great. Um, so let's talk about um, your early years, well, before there wasn't even cosmetic dermatology, but entering the world of dermatology, and you were actually on the front lines of the AIDS epidemic at the time. Mm -hmm. Right, so tell us how, how that happened. Well, I started as an internist. I, I was a board-certified internist. I still am a board-certified internist, and then, then I went into infectious diseases. In fact, I was one of the authors of the first paper of blood transfusion and GRID. It was called Gay-Related Immunodeficiency. That's how far back I go. And I did a lot of these studies on AZT and the drugs that were early used. But at the time, both of my parents were actually dying, and my patients were dying, and I had newborns at home. And I just felt very depressed about, I, I'm a very optimistic person, and I also don't have very good boundaries with my patients. So every death was very personal. And it was too hard for me to have so much negativity in my life. And I've always wanted to be a dermatologist. So the chief of dermatology actually in the hospital said, you really know a tremendous amount of dermatology. Would you like the residency? And I said, yes. I didn't even hesitate. So I did another residency after medicine and infectious diseases. And I did three more years of dermatology. So I did the long route. But right. I think that's the, that's the passion. If it's, if it's worth it, it doesn't matter how long it takes. How were you able to, of all the, the things you could have practiced, um, hone in on dermatology? Um, first of all, I had a very bad skin growing up. And I went to a very good dermatologist in New York named Louis Wexler. And I happened to marry his nephew. <laughs> So how old were you when you went to Lewis Wexler? Um, I was probably about 16 or 17. So high school, uh, years I, before you met your husband. Yes, and I was at NYU and I was in the cafeteria and I had just come back from visiting him and I was at the table in the lunchroom and my husband was at the table and he said, where were you? And I said, I was at the dermatologist and he said, his uncle's the best dermatologist. And I said, no, my dermatologist is the best. <laughs> 
And it turned out to be the same person. That's awesome. And he asked me out on a date, and that's the history. So your teen acne inspired a conversation with a stranger, which inspired right. the first date. Right. And actually, I always thought of him as my uncle because we were very close. Mm -hmm. And he was a wonderful man. And he actually gave a lot of dermatologists their start when they finished, and I won't mention names, a very famous dermatologist, he let them work in his, their, in his office before they got their own offices. And he did studies on Rogaine. Mm -hmm. And he was a very well-known dermatologist in his day. So what was um, an acne treatment like for you at the time as a teen? What oh, were the God. options? It was terrible. There was nothing. There was no Accutane. They used sun lamps, which we know how dangerous mm -hmm. they are for skin cancer. Um, and nothing was very effective. So I actually went to somebody who advertised in a magazine, and I had a phenol peel, which is a very, very strong peel that made my whole face crust up. Ugh. But it actually got rid of the acne, mm -hmm. and it helped tremendously with all the stains on my skin. Um, and I saw, you know, what it did for me. It gave me much more confidence and it made me feel good about myself. So I was very interested in dermatology always. In fact, my mother, who was very meticulous about skin, used to take me to the store and get me the most expensive makeup, which was probably the worst thing she could have done for me. She got me Erna Laszlo makeup, which had a lot of oils and, mm -hmm. but that just fed the acne. Right. Um, but she did take me to NYU Skin and Cancer. Dr. Shalita was there at the time, and he gave me Retin-A, but at that time it was in a liquid form, and it was like an acid. Mm. It just burned the skin off. So acne treatment was in its infancy at that point. Right, but how um, incredible that your mother is willing to help she was pretty innovative, innovative as a mother to take you to all these places, Oh, yeah. Right? She was amazing. My mother was amazing in a million ways. I mean, she was very progressive with clothing. She was, ama she was an amazing style, stylish person. She would wear Halston and Treger and um, Comme des Garces. She even wore Issa Mayaki. And I remember she went to Bergdorf and got the first Prada bag that ever was in the United States. People would stop her on the street and ask her where she got her clothing, where she got her hair cut. She was a beautiful woman. She was quite, quite, quite a sight. So let's go back to um, being a teenager, having this peel that was super aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, were you scared? Um, yeah, when I saw my face crust, I was scared, but yet I wasn't that scared. I just, for some reason, I had faith in him. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I was desperate at the time. Right, and I mean, I think this is a this is a story that never ends, right? So many teens are suffering right. with um, the emotional impact of acne, right. um, and they'll try anything. And that's what's so satisfying in my own practice. When you have a, a, ch a child, and they are children, come to you and they won't look you in the eyes because they have terrible cystic acne, and you give them a course of Accutane, and they leave smiling, look at you, looking at you in the eyes, you know you've done something very life-changing for yeah. them. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing those teen stories uh, with us. So let's talk about um, when you opened your first practice, right? This is after you did um, the, the focus on dermatology. Well. I was seven months pregnant when I finished my training. Mm -hmm. And I 
I shared offices with people. I would sublet space. Mm -hmm. My first space that I sublet was in the village. It was a basement office and it had one window in the kitchen. And that didn't last long because it just was too small and, you know, it was very hard to manipulate. And then I had the idea of subletting an office that had three gynecologists. And that was great because it had hundreds of women walking through right. it. So I got a lot of patients quickly because mm -hmm. there was me, the dermatologist, and all these women coming through. But I got too busy and they needed more space. So then I sublet another office. So I was just sort of the gypsy moving around. And it was very difficult to keep continuity. So then I said I wanted to open my own office. So I went from bank to bank trying to get a loan. And I was pregnant again. This time I was, again, seven months pregnant. And nobody wanted to give me a loan because here I was a woman, seven months pregnant, and I wanted a big loan to open an office. So I thought I was going to not be able to do it. But I met a woman banker who had faith in me, and she gave me the loan, and I opened my office, which is the same office I have now, and she's still my banker. That's awesome. Yeah, but it was really, that was a low. Yeah, I bet. That was a big low. And not only did was I able to open the office, but they wanted me to take a life insurance policy on a lease, which no other person in the building had. Mm -hmm. There was no man in the office that had to take a life insurance policy. And they wanted my husband to co-sign police, which is ridiculous. It was definitely sexist and a big lesson for me that you were never going to be treated equally. So that was a low point. Right. And um, like how many months of no's did you have to go through before you found the banker who had faith in you? A lot of months of no. Mm -hmm. I went to every bank until I went to Citibank. That, at that time, she was at Citibank. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me, and she's a tough cookie, and that's the only way you can get that way as a woman banker. And she said, Patty, if you're late with one payment, you'll never get, you know, you'll never survive. And I was never late with a payment. She's now been my banker. For, I've had this office 26 years. And of course, I've never been late with a payment. And I've expanded the office, and I've bought homes through her. Mm -hmm. And she's always been wonderful and good to us. Did you always have the inner confidence that it would be fine? Or did the no's um, sort of make you second guess yourself? I'd like to call it confidence. I don't know if I was just foolhardy, mm -hmm. but I always, I always just forged ahead. I mean, it was confidence to just decide the two of us were gonna go to medical school together with no money. I mean, we did it ourselves on loans. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we did a lot of things that were just based on love and passion and, I guess, confidence. But, you know, we had no income when we opened these offices. You know, we just opening an office and waiting for patients to come in. <laughs> I don't know if that's confidence or stupid, <laughs> but we did it. That's awesome. So, um, you know, you have a lot of experience developing beauty products, right? You've done this for behind the scenes for Donna Karen, right? I, Donna? I met Donna at her trunk show, and uh, 25 years ago, she decided she wanted to have a skincare line. She was developing it and asked me if I would, if I would try it, and it was terrible. And I said, "It's 
like a drugstore, but it's not good. And she said, would you mind giving them advice? And after a year of just friendship, I had redesigned the whole line and I had developed a fragrance. I developed Cashmere Mist. And I said, I think it's time you paid me something. <laughs> so um, we negotiated a contract. And then a year after that, she licensed it to Lauder. And as soon as they did that, and by the way, Cashmere Mist is still in the top five in the country 25 years later. And after that, Calvin asked me if I would develop a makeup line and skincare for him, and I did that. And then when Lever discontinued that, Bath & Body asked me if, no, it was Revlon, asked me if I would develop a skincare line for them. And I said if they used kinerase as the active ingredient, it's a plant DNA. And I developed Almakinetin for them. And that was amazing success. And then after that was launched, um, they already had the product developed. Um, Bath and Body asked me if I would develop an eponymous name, Patricia Wexler MD for them. And that's been 10 years. And uh, so I've been developing products for quite a long time. So after working behind the scenes for all those big names, what did it feel like to finally have your name on the product? It was nice not to be the bridesmaid. <laughs> It was, I had total control, advertising, package insert, product, mm -hmm. packaging, and it was great because it's exactly what I wanted, and it was very, very successful, it, and it still has great demand, but right now I'm trying to reformulate it, and re I've been given the rights back to it with the formulations. Mm -hmm and the trademarks, and I want to take it into another direction. So Bath & Body Works, your contract with them expired, expired, and they handed everything back to you? Yes. That's they, incredible. That, they gave everything back to me. So now I'm working with people to try to take it in another direction. There's so many... In my spare time. Right, in your spare time. <laughs> um, there's so many times when um, someone's name is on a, on a brand and it doesn't belong to them anymore. You know, no matter what they try, they can't get it back, so it's incredible. Well, it was in the contract that it wouldn't come back to me, but they were very nice and they did give it, because they can't use it. Mm -hmm. So it's also in the contract they can't use it, so they have no use for it, right. so they were very nice and gave it to me. That's a smart contract. Yeah, but it was very nice of them. They were only good, they were very nice to work with. Mm -hmm. So um, now, what, what do you see in the next five years for your, your own brand, your own name? Um, I would like to... There are new products. There are, there's a new direction I can take it in. Mm -hmm. um, the MMP technology is still, you know, MMP inhibitor is a really valid technology, and I want to keep it, but there are other things we can do with it. Um, it was stimulated by the L It does the same thing as an LED. It inhibits the proteinases that break down collagen and elastic tissue. So it's really a great technology and we can take it in other directions. And I'd like to see where we can take it. So you are, I've noticed, a super ambitious person, but you also seem very calm and serene. Everybody uses that word for me. Calm? Calm. Is this your everyday? You're, you're, you feel like this? Depends who I'm with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I try to be very calm. I really am. If something doesn't work, I've been told you eliminate it. Mm -hmm. That's all. If, if something's not working, don't push it. You know, I try to keep things in my life that are 
good and healthy and don't do things that aren't good and healthy. So in your business, you're um, with people when they're most vulnerable, right? It's probably a common theme no matter right. what their age is. Um, so you have to keep it together for them, right. right? So when you go home, do you ever feel like you just need to give yourself a chance to fall apart? I only fall apart when there's a personal problem with my family. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely the low points in my life were when my parents passed away. They died the same year. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had a tremendous void in my body. I really had a physical reaction for a year. Um, for me, they were like my children. Mm -hmm. I had taken care of them for so many years. I felt like I lost children. Um, and that was very hard for me, and I did fall apart emotionally. Mm -hmm. And you had little kids of your own at the time. And I had little children of my own, so that was very hard. Mm -hmm. um, when my grand, one of my grandchildren was born, he was born with a very rare syndrome where he had anaphylaxis, and he stopped breathing oh all the time. In one week, he stopped breathing three times, and nobody could figure out why. And that's when I was thankful I was a dermatologist. It turned out to be a very rare dermatologic disease. Oh, my God. And during the anaphylaxis, a rash came out, a very specific rash. And when he got the EpiPen, the rash went away. So none of the doctors diagnosed it in the hospital. Mm -hmm. But when I saw the rash, he had the attack in front of me. I knew the name of the disease immediately, and we were able to treat it. So I actually saved his oh life. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. And that's the time I said, thank God. I knew he was meant to be ours. Mm -hmm. He was meant to be a dermatologist because there were only 300 children in the country with this syndrome. Oh, my goodness. How old is he now? And now he's nine, and there are 150,000 children in the country with this disease. And they think 3,000 children diagnosed with crib death actually have this disease. Oh, my goodness. So... That's the time I felt I was really meant to be a dermatologist. How old was he when this was happening? Eight months ago. Oh, such a baby. He was a baby, and he kept, he kept having anaphylaxis. And the treatment is totally different for his problem than for regular, like, um, peanut allergy. Right. He's not allergic to peanuts. He's not allergic to shellfish. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with that. It's the mast cell reaction, which is what happens with peanut allergy. But he's not allergic to that. It's a whole different syndrome. So what is what is the syndrome called? Mast cell disease. Mast cell. Yeah. And there are three different forms, and it's very rare. But I was so thankful that I was with him when it happened because nobody could have diagnosed it if they weren't. Right. And they never see it because he gets the EpiPen mm -hmm. and then goes to the hospital. So it, it was just a fluke that I could be there. Right, with this gift of knowledge. Oh, my God, it's incredible. Well, this leads me into something that you told me, and I think it ties very well. Um, you told me that it's important not to rush your life. Yeah. Right, so this is something you said to me a few times. What does that mean to you? Um, because I worked so hard and had so much to do, I think my life was rushed, and my daughter's... I fear for them doing the same thing, and I keep telling them if they feel rushed, change while you still can, because they're young. Mm -hmm. So if it's not working, do something about it, because, you know, I've certainly I try to make time 
for the family as much as I can. I try to see the grandchildren every week, um, which is important. They're both in New York, so we have usually Sunday brunches all together. They have their lives, so it's not like they have time for me all the time. Um, I want to make time for my husband. Um, I wish we had more time for vacations. I just don't think it's good to rush your life. You have to have a balanced life. I like to have dates with my husband. Usually when we, I say we eat lunch together, we try to go out for lunch once or twice a week and get away from the office and away from everybody. Um, especially when the weather is good. When it's too cold, it's harder. Mm -hmm. But we always do go out. We, in the summer, we take off three days every week. So we go to the Hamptons, we go to our house, and the quieter the better. <laughs> so we do that. Um, so, you know, don't rush it. Do what, do what you want. Go to the theater. I love the theater. Mm -hmm. I like going to galleries. We love photography. Um, I'm not that sport active anymore. I used used to, but my body doesn't like it as much anymore. So, um, but just take time and smell the roses. Right. So um, it's something I practice. You know, it is a practice. I don't think there's any perfect there. Um, I am ambitious, but I have no desire to, to take over the world. My world domination is right. not an interest of mine right. because for world domination, that's all in. Right, and I do have some friends who are like they want to dominate in their in their industry, and um, you have to give up a lot to do that. I didn't try to do anything. I opened in a basement office in the village. This happened. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a PR. I know a lot of young dermatologists start with PR the minute they open. I didn't do that. I opened in the basement. And I moved from office to office. I just wanted to make a living. Right. So now you just try to stay relevant. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It, it's good to be relevant. And it's nice to get prestige. And it's nice to get honors. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't want to become obsolete. But there's a difference between wanting to stay relevant and dominating. Right. Right. I think relevance is um, the key because the way that business works and everything moves so quickly now that you don't have a choice. You either keep working to keep relevancy, right. which means you evolve and your offerings evolve, or you stay where you are. But if you stay where you are, you're dead. Right. If, if there's you no stay choice, where you are, you're dead. Right. So you have to stay relevant. Mm -hmm. But to stay relevant, you're working very hard. So it's the gerbil yes. on the wheel. Yes. And that gets very difficult. It's not like internal medicine, where people come to you, they get the water pill, they get their hypertensive medicine. Mm -hmm. If they need a specialist, you send them to the... It's, it's very difficult. This is a difficult specialty. Right. So anybody starting is, is going to have a hard time. Right. It's um, super competitive and very noisy. Yes. Right. Crowded. So, yes. Very crowded. So I think you have to pick something you want to excel at. You can excel at everything, mm -hmm. which is why in our group we have people who special who do everything, but they specialize in hair, or I specialize in contouring, and my husband is 
you know, the Althera King, you know, whatever. We all have our specialty, but you can't specialize in everything. You have to pick something that otherwise you're going to go crazy. Yep. Yep. So there's, um, the last thing I want to talk about is something you told me. I said, you know, um, if there was a last thought for you, um, you'd say you were stubborn. <laughs> I don't sense that from you talking to you now, but what is, how does that come out in your everyday life? Is stubborn the right word? I don't know if that's the right word. Well, I don't know if stubborn's the right I opened my own practice because I like doing things my way. Mm -hmm. So if that's stubborn, I, I wouldn't have been good working for somebody who told me I can't do this or I can't do that. That's the reason I didn't work with anybody else when I finished because nobody was doing these things. Nobody was doing Botox when I finished in 19, you know, I finished in 1986 and I was already doing liposuction. I was already taking liposuction courses in the office. Nobody would have let me do that. Right. So if somebody said, you can't do that, I would have been out right. before I, I started. I guess I call that ambition. Well, I wouldn't belong in a co-op. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you call it. I'm not good at being bossed. Mm -hmm. I hear you. After all these years of running my own business, I think I'm unemployable. I'm unemployable. So I don't know if that's stubborn <laughs> or... That's, that's what I meant to say. I, I can't be directed. If I feel something is necessary, that's what I... You know, when somebody who had worked for me wanted to do something that I didn't think was safe or appropriate for our office. I said, I don't want it done here. Mm -hmm. So I, maybe I'm opinionated. Maybe that's a better word. Mm -hmm. I'm very opinionated. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoy this interview with Patricia. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcasts. Mm -hmm.